Hi, my name is Tzemach, and my guest today is Sholom Aleichem. And we have an um, interesting, good, and we have an interesting subject today. We would like to talk why we're not welcome in Chabad communities. We found that both of us have something in common, so we'd like to uh, sort of dwell on it a little bit. So without further ado, Sholom Aleichem. How are you? Good. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. Good. So I was thinking about the subject, and I think the real one reason why I, I feel unwelcome is because while Chabad today calls itself Chabad, which is the acronym Chachachma Bina Vadas, which is knowledge, understanding, wisdom, uh, in fact, Chabad is a movement today that uh, stomachs no questions. Um, you can't ask questions in Chabad, and unless those questions are pre-rehearsed, uh, you know, uh, was the Rebbe the greatest rabbi in the last 500 years or something like that. But you can't ask any critical questions at all. Um, and critical, I don't necessarily mean negative. I just, you, you can't ask any questions. For example, um, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, from hanging around Chabad, I asked various people over the course of many years, why do the Bacharim and many adults wear their shirts untucked? I mean, what's the reason for that? And all I get is obfuscations. I, I have never gotten an answer for, for that. I've never gotten someone tell me, you know, we wear it untucked uh, because, uh, you know, uh, a rabbi in the in the 19th century wore it untucked, or or you know whatever, uh, you know, you know, no one's answered me. It's it's a it's a it, it's it's an innocent question. It's not even a uh, what I would call a critical question, but they won't answer because, and that leads me to believe there's there's something to hide. Then another question. You know that uh, you know, and that, this question is a little bit more critical, um, and it, it may have a little bit more of an agenda. But you know, if you go into you deal with Chabad Hasidim, and I'm not necessarily saying you have to go into their shul, but you you deal with them, you talk to them. Why is there no new Rebbe? Um, you know, so the answer again is obfuscation. I see. Uh, I see. You you really you really go from untacked shirts to to a new rabbit. That's uh, that's good. That's good. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, you know, why is there no new rabbit? And you know, once again, it's obfuscated as if they tell me there's a Masora that there are only seven Chabad rabbis. Well, you know, I know that's baloney. And then they uh, they come up with and they come up with all sorts of answers. But I've never heard of an answer. I've never heard of a, of a legitimate answer why there's no new rebbe. I've never heard about it. I, I have you know in all the time I've spent hanging out or uh, whatever with these people, I've never heard. And and there are probably many many other many other questions. You know that other people ask; they're, they're not willing to entertain these questions. They're, they're willing to entertain, you know, questions that they have ready, uh, ready-made answers for. And and so, in fact, you know, I'll go to the next step. In fact, Chabad today 
is not chokma, bina, vadas. It's not wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. It's in fact very cult-like. C-U-L-T, very cult-like. Uh, there, there, no, there's no room for questioning. There's no room for any new ideas. There's just, it's just a cult-like atmosphere where you know there are certain um, doc doctrines that are uh, posited, and that's it, you know, and take it or leave it. Basically, that's what Chabad is. Take it or leave it. You know, uh, you know, you can either accept what the movement has to tell you, or you can, uh, you know, uh, reject it and just, uh, I guess, take a walk. I'm, I'm not, you know. So, but, uh, but I, this is, it, there is a nature of religious community. I mean, if you go if you go to uh, well, Satmar, sure. if you go to Satmar, if you go to Misnagdim, you, you're not going to get many more answers than you get in Chabad. Um, I don't know. I, I'll, um, let's, let's say if you want to join, um, you, you just want to join a Hasidic community. Uh, and, you know, you're living in a city. Let's, let's just pretend we're going to create a city in the United States with a uh, a hundred thousand Jews. Let's let's call it Baltimore. Let's call it Chicago. Uh, you have a large community, and let's say a certain Hasidic group, not Chabad, has a synagogue. Well, you know, if you or I or anyone else went into that synagogue, um, most of the people there would be wearing the same talisman we are wearing. Most of the people there on weekdays would be wearing similar tefillin that we're wearing, that we wear. Most of the people there would be um, davening from, uh, if not a similar prayer book, because they may be davening this far and we would be, uh, let's say, Ashkenaz, but they wouldn't be davening from one standard prayer book. They would be, they would, uh, you know, whatever prayer, Tikkun Shloma, Tikkun Mayor, whatever the uh, latest uh, thing, I'm, I'm dating myself a little, um, and, and go, so on and so forth. But you walk into a Chabad show, it's very cultic. Everyone's wearing the same talus. Most people are folding the talus the same way. Everyone's wearing the same pair of tefillin. Same style, same pair of fill has to be huge to fill in, uh, uh, you know, as described in the New Testament, uh, the huge phylacteries of the Pharisees. Um, every, everyone is, is dobbing from the exact same prayer book, the exact same. It's got to be a Tielos Hashem, I guess, uh, unless uh, maybe if you're Spitz, it's a, it's a Torah or Siddur. But 99% of them are from Tielosis. So why wouldn't anyone feel very uncomfortable in that show? Anyone who has any idea about Judaism. Now, if you're, uh, if you're coming from, um, you know, I don't know where it is you're coming from, from Greenland. You were born in Greenland and your, your parents were not uh, religious. Maybe, you know, it will take you a while to understand what's going on that, uh, you know, you wouldn't catch on right away and you would start believing, which many people do, that the Chabad menorah is the standard menorah. Well, hey, it's not. It's not the standard menorah. It's not the menorah the state of Israel uses, nor is it the menorah that any Hasidic Rebbe uses. And I have to add, it's not the menorah that the Lubavitcher Rebbe used. Rabbi Menachem M. Schneerson. It's not the style of menorah that he used. Yet, every Lubavitcher Chabad house has that menorah. Uh, so it's very cultic. 
And again, if you're unless you're interested in joining a cult, this is not a movement that appeals to people who think, and it's not a movement that appeals to people who have any questions. Now, the other Hasidic movements may not either, but you know what? There's a big difference. They don't go out and recruit anyone to join them. I have yet to meet a Satmar, Ger, Bavavir, Belzer, Square, whatever you want to name me, representative. I've never met a representative of any of these groups coming out and asking me, are you Jewish? Are you Jewish? I've never, I've never encountered any such thing. But here I find a movement that runs after people on a college, on a college campus, no less on a place where people are supposed to question. That's what college is all about. Whether in fact, in the last five or 10 years that happens, I am not on the campus. I'm not a Chabad representative, but- I, you know, I, have, to, I have to say though, that everything you listed so far doesn't bother, doesn't bother me a bit. I have completely different issues. I mean, well, okay, everything you listed, and, and, I, and the thing is, and if, I'll say even more, yeah, I, I was I was contemplating how we're going to conduct this conversation, and I don't have notes, nothing. I don't know, but I was thinking, maybe instead of making it abstract, we what we've been doing so far, we should making we should make it more concrete. You know, so let's let's not name a particular town, a particular shul, but let's say shul number one in town number three, and then describe what's really going on there. And I, in return, you know, I will also name couple, but it wouldn't be like an abstraction. It would be something that's a little more real. Okay. So what, what, I, what, I, what I'm appealing to you is sort of go down from this bird's eye view, 100 miles in the air and come down and say, okay, today, in the morning, I walk out and I go to a show. And, and then what you experience, maybe you can describe is that that will be a little more mamoshadik, uh, as they say, you know, a little okay. more real. But, my, I, mm-hmm. I, no, but like, you know, I'm not saying that we're going to have the same opinion about things. Obviously, you, you know, you, yeah. you would be looking at things differently than I. But maybe it's a way to sort of kind of meet in the middle somewhere. Yeah, you know, I I am not necessarily, um, you know, talking about what makes a Chabad synagogue unwelcoming. Uh, To me, it's the Chabad community, but I'm willing to, uh, I'm happy to do it. Now, let's say in my local Chabad synagogue, just walking over the threshold turns me off. Why? There is a huge picture of around six feet long and four feet uh, wide at the minimum. Color, color portrait of you know who, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Now, you know, I am not 20 years old and I've been to many synagogues in the world and I've yet to be in any synagogue that has a picture of the of, of any of a human being in, in the synagogue or even in the corridor of the synagogue. That's enough to turn me off just crossing over the threshold. Um, why? Why the need for a, um, for a, um, 
a human picture. And, and we we are commanded, and we're commanded in the uh, Bible, you know, against pictures. There There is certainly, uh, while the consensus of rabbinic opinion in the last 300 years is not really against paintings or, or, or pictures, but it's it's not exactly it's not exactly positive either. And it's not exactly positive. I mean, uh, you know, no one's going to go out. I mean, no rabbi is going to go out and pose for a portrait, uh, you know. But, uh, you know, in Chabad, they'll put up a huge, a, a huge portrait of their leader. You know, so that's number one. So now I'm, but what I'm talking about is a particular thing about a synagogue. Number two, and this is a problem that exists in many synagogues, but it certainly exists in the local Chabad synagogue, constant talking, constant talking. You know, there's always a buzz. There's always a buzz in the synagogue. So, you know, if you're one of those few people who are actually interested in davening, uh, you know, the shul is not really uh, very conducive to a real prayer experience. And furthermore, as an American, and I guess I can call myself an American, and I can call myself a lot of things, um, the, 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 the respect for a human being in the synagogue is non-existent. And what do I mean? When you say Kaddish, you can walk, I mean, I've, I haven't been in a conservative synagogue, but I imagine that, that when the people get up and say the Kaddish, the mourners Kaddish, and it's certainly true in modern Orthodox synagogues and in other synagogues, when people say the mourners Kaddish, there's a certain modicum of quiet, of respect for the mourner who is reciting the Kaddish. In the Chabad show that I'm uh, that I'm referencing, what what respect? What what no? There's noise. You you don't even know when to say Kaddish. You don't. You have no idea when to say Kaddish. There's no there's no idea when to say Kaddish. I mean, you're taking you're taking a guess. There's so much noise and so much tumult. Uh, so there's just the plain lack of decency. You know, and uh, I know people out there are going to get angry, but uh, it does exist. The plain lack of decency. A person is trying to say Kaddish. Forget about uh, the rest of the davening. A person is trying to say Kaddish. You know, and at the very least, for that person, you know, and, you know, I, I can go on with with certain um, um Issues that make me very uncomfortable in, in in a Chabad synagogue. One of them is the is the um, negation of what are, what's called in Yiddish skarbava nigunim, which means standard tunes in the davening. So you, you, there there are standard tunes to many pieces in the davening. Instead, the Chabad people feel the need to substitute those standard melodies with pop with pop songs that are nigunim. They're not then they were never intended for davening, like the Ufaratsta or or they were never intended for the davening. They were intended as a nigun. And instead, Chabad davening now has become all about trying to put nigunim into the davening. And if you don't do that, you're not a good Chabad Baltzfila. 
now, you know, of course, if you're someone who's grown up in 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 a Jewish uh, thing, you'll you'll feel a little bit uncomfortable. That uh, hey, where where's the standard tune? I couldn't even believe that one of these days Lubavitch is going to substitute uh, some some Chabad nigun for Kol Nidre. I believe it. Uh, which leads me to uh, what my summation in a certain sense, which is the fact that Judaism places a premium on the seller, on tradition. It places a premium on tradition. Uh, So, yeah, let's go back to Satmar. If you go back and you go into Satmar Beishmedrish in Antwerp, in Monroe, in Beishemis, wherever, you will find everyone there dabbing with the pronunciation, the Hungarian pronunciation. You will find people, you know, um, dabbing the similar style. But in Lubavitch, what you will find are people wearing shoes like the Rebbe with holes. You'll find people wearing socks like the Rebbe. You'll find a huge number of people who wear the same arrow shirts, short sleeves, by the way, uh, that the Rebbe does. But no one seems to care about one of the most important parts of our Masorah, which is how we pronounce Hebrew. No one seems to care to, to pronounce Hebrew the same way the Rebbe pronounced it. That seems to have gone out the, into the trash bin. The, and the Rebbe had a specific way of pronouncing Hebrew, as did his father-in-law, which was the Lithuanian white Russian pronunciation. And yet, if you go into the average Chabad shul, you will find in one davening Shabbos morning, one person pronouncing it the, the classic Chabad way. The next person who davens Musaf will be a Sephardi Jew from Morocco who will pronounce it in a way that's completely unintelligible. The person davening Shacharis may pronounce it a Galtianer way. And most likely, most of the people coming up to the davening for the Ahmed as the Chazan and Baltfila will be pronouncing it in a in a, 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 a gobbledygook of pronunciations that is neither Lithuanian, neither Galtianer, neither American, neither German, but a combination of 20, because there is no Mesorah in Chabad. And why isn't there a Mesorah? Because I don't think the Rebbe wanted a Mesorah. Uh, the Rebbe did his best as uh, to borrow something from your vocabulary, to unhinge Chabad from its Russian background, from its from its um, European background, European from a European background. No, no, see, I, uh, no, no. It was originally your term, which which I actually like very much. Okay, to lose its Russian and European anchor. Right. So, so you know, th- there's one. So personally, and I speak about personally because the well, I, I am not. Uh, I can't speak about a worldwide view, but personally, it makes me feel very uncomfortable. It makes me feel very uncomfortable walking into a Chabad shul, seeing people, everyone wearing the same hat, the same crushed fedora, every single person wearing that, and almost every single person wearing the same talus, and I mentioned this before, the same style of a talus. Yet, when it comes to an important part of the Masorah, pronunciation of Hebrew, and I'll add 
as a and people here again will start of course uh, say that I uh, you know I'm talking about nonsense you know when it comes to the the most important cultural transmitter of Eastern European Judaism and yes yes my friends out there Chabad is part of Eastern Europe. Until 1940, it was part of Eastern Europe, 1941. Chabad is not centered in Madison, Wisconsin. It's not centered in Berkeley. It's not centered in Greenwich Village. Its center was Lubavitch, Klimovich, Neville, other such cities. But, and what was the most important cultural transmitter of all time? Yiddish. The language Yiddish. Language is a cultural transmitter. And yet that too was done away with essentially. So in the quest for Chabad to become American, language was done away with, the, the pronunciation of Hebrew was completely, uh, you do whatever you want to do. Everything was done away with, all in the quest to make Chabad American. So I don't feel comfortable in this sort of thing. You know, this is much more comfortable for a, a, a gentleman or a young lady who grew up in um, in Portland, Oregon, or in uh, Santa Fe. Yeah, they don't know anything. They're also um, very eager to to please the Chabad representative and to tell him what he wants to hear. That oh yes, Rabbi uh, Smith, uh, the Rebbe is the greatest rabbi in the last hundred years. Well, uh, Miss, uh, Miss Jones, what other rabbi do you know of? Can you name me another rabbi? Orthodox, reform, conservative, reconstructionist, humanistic. You don't even know, what are you telling me that he's the greatest rabbi? You don't know, you don't know of any other rabbi. So what's your comparison? But of course that has to be followed with a check uh, to the Chabad representative. Uh, you know, so I'm not, you know, I'm going to turn it over to you at this point because I'm getting a bit off the target. So um, what, wh why do you feel uncomfortable in the Chabad community? Well, uh, listen, my take is a little different from yours. I... It's okay. That's yeah. why we're, well, that's why we do ask questions here. Yes. Um, well, I mentioned to you that um, I said, you know, I'm not exactly through anymore, but then you said, well, most people who go to Chabad shuls are not from. And, that's, and I was thinking, wait a second, he's right. If most people who go to Chabad shuls are not from, or sort of a from, why can't I go to Chabad shul? Because yeah, I, I'm invited to, but I, I don't have a positive experience. And I think a positive experience is that I think the quality of people who run Chabad shuls is sort of became very low because Chabad shul is no longer a spiritual institution, but a business. People who run a lot of those shuls, maybe today even the majority, are sort of like, uh, you know, they, they stick like little businessmen. And so they, their strength of their personalities is in, in geschäft. It's not, uh, their strength is not spirituality. If their strength was in spirituality, they would have been uh, what today is called a failed shliach. And because they actually, when shul is open and they realize it's all of a sudden a shul, not a business, 
is just not it's not it's not their strength. So inevitably, what comes out is very kind of a primitive kind of discourse. And I know some people who grew up from they sort of immune to it because they have listened to so many droshes uh, at at their time. Uh, there's some people, particular people who grow up in this grow, grow up in this community. They're sort of immune to anything that's being said in show. They sort of ignore it uh, totally, regardless of what it says. And like for me personally, it's a bit hard, maybe because I'm introvert and I'm sort of addicted to meaning. When, when I hear discourse that's sort of very primitive or not just primitive, but uh, wrong or and not thought through, I, I get sort of upset. Maybe it's my curse as an introvert. So inevitably, I find hard time dealing with the content of 99.9% of Abad shows today. The other thing is maybe they're not geared uh, to people like uh, you and I anymore. Maybe they are geared to this uh, average whatever it is average American Jew, average Israeli Jew, person who, I wouldn't say doesn't know much, but sort of never spent a big part of his life thinking about those issues. So inevitably, uh, when, uh, when it's you and I who sort of live thinking about those things, there is, an, there is a problem. There's a problem of integrating in that type of a makeup. And I think previously, as you said, a rov was a rov. It was a position of respect, of authority, and now it's it's a completely different. And you know, I I know you can say that the shul and the rabbis it was in, in certain way a business, always maybe even three hundred years ago, but it it have taken a sort of a grotesque turn, where you know if I look around and if I look around here even in Boston, you know. Few years back, there weren't such thing as shlichus. There were people maybe like Gurkov, even Semen, Gurkov, Zolzan, Gizun, Cement, all of Asholom. They came to those towns to build schools. But then, uh, you know, 30 years ago, they realized, you know, shlichus is business, and all kind of characters showed up here. They're not really rabbis, they're, they're little businessmen. And it, it shows uh, in the spirit that they infuse their congregations with. So what do you think about this? Yeah, I think you're, 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 you're on the mark. You know, um, most Chabad shuls are franchises, which the Chabad representative will pass on to his children, be it a son-in-law or a son. Uh, so the, the, these are very valuable franchises, and they are businesses. And uh, the usual, you know, I agree with you. I think most of the shluchim who have become, uh, they've realized, as you say, that the synagogue, the synagogue is an American institution, uh, which many American Jews, who even who are not religious, uh, feel the need to join because there's still a need to have a bar mitzvah, a bas mitzvah. And, you know, your non-Jewish neighbor is certainly in a good part of the United States, like the South and the uh, 
west, your non-Jewish neighbor belongs to a church. So you do for business reasons or just for um, to be like your non-Jewish neighbor, you need to belong to a synagogue. So the Chabad synagogue offers a much better uh, price than the average conservative or reformed temple, and it demands a lot less uh, because the average conservative temple does require a few years of uh, Hebrew school before they'll conduct a bar mitzvah in the school. There are some uh, criteria for uh, membership and for life cycle events. Um, the average Chabad place has no such criteria and no such requirements. And, uh, you know, one, one does understand that uh, a nice donation or even not a nice donation will get you there. So I happen to agree, you know, that the, the Chabad synagogue um, is more a is more of a business and uh, that than it is anything else. And the Chabad rabbis are not really rabbis. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are some Chabad shluchim who know their halachic material, but I have met many who don't know anything, know very little. Let's 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 say that. Who are hardly, as you say, they're hardly rabbis. They're, they're no, more but like you know, it, it's a matter of selection. Meaning, let's say, hundred years ago in, in Europe, if you're being appointed a rabbi, it requires certain spiritual and intellectual standing. And now, if you appointed um, a chabad shliach or on a chabad shul, it looks like the main re requirement is to make people comfortable and business acumen. Essentially, being, yeah, well, being a good fundraiser, but which which means that when 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 there's a time to daven, there's certain void there that you feel in shul, and I would say there's certain like a primitive. A lot of those people, they have some sort of primitive level because none of them is educated in any secular way or even in Jewish way. They just memorize. Right. They memorize certain Chabad formulas. And they, well, and, they and they and they spit and they spit them out. And you know, when when you being inside that kind of experience, and maybe for a person who comes from outside, it doesn't matter. But no, for a person who knows doesn't. what's going on, it it's uh, it's sort of like I mean, for me personally, it's upsetting. Yeah, well, the average Chabad synagogue, and I don't claim that I've been to many. I've been to some. I have been to some, just for the record. Um, the, the spiritual leader of the synagogue uh, never went to high school. He never went to college. His sermon that he delivers is usually a prepackaged sermon that the headquarters in 770 sends out to, to hundreds of shulchim across the country dealing with the Parsha. You know, and they probably, by now, they probably send out seven different uh, choices that you have to pick. I mean, this is a sophisticated movement. Uh, but they're clearly, knowing some Chabad representatives, I know that they clearly did not write the sermon. They clearly did not write it. And, and so I think piggybacking off what you said, that in a sermon or a Devar Torah that you're likely to hear in a Chabad synagogue, you're not likely to get anything Jewish of value, nor are you likely to get anything secular of value. 
Uh, I, I was in a synagogue here in New Haven, and uh, which is where I am. I don't, and uh, and there was a Chabad representative speaking many years ago on on uh, Arab Yom Kippur, Arab Rosh Hashanah, and this man, he was not a native of, the, he was not a uh, a resident of the city. This man, just his sermon, consisted of a series of one-line jokes. He was more like Henny Youngman than he was than the Kelmer Magid, if anyone out there knows who the Kelmer Magid was. He was more like uh, Jackie Mason, and uh, certainly not in the quality of Jackie Mason, but you know, he was spitting out one-liners. Did you hear the one about the Indian chief about, and the rabbi? Did you hear one about the bartender and the priest and the rabbi? I mean, this is what you speak about on the high holy days, but... You do, because these people, I think you hit on another important thing. These people are not sophisticated. They, they, there's no level of Jewish sophistication in them, and there's no level of secular sophistication. Uh, what, you know, the Gemara talks about that, the, uh, the Gemara talks about that Jews, unfortunately, may assimilate, but they won't assimilate, and the Gemara uses the word, they won't assimilate like the people who, the non-Jews, who are good people, who are upright people, who are, uh, which I would use to mean high culture, they will assimilate like the low culture people. And that is what Chabad is all about, the low culture. How can you be part of the high culture if you never went to high school? You don't know what music is. You don't know what art is. You don't know what philosophy is. You don't know anything. You claim, many of these Chabad representatives claim that they know this and they know that. Well, they know it maybe from a one-liner in Wikipedia or, or wherever, maybe. But they certainly, how can you be a, 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 an educated person dealing with a Jewish community in, in the United States that is highly educated and never gone to high school? That's why Chabad's favorite targets are... Israelis, many of the Israelis, some Israelis in America are highly educated, but many are not. Many of them are just uh, talented businessmen, and uh, but not not particularly educated. And number two, uh, another target group are college students. So you'll ask, but college students are educated. Well, they're on their way to get educated, number one. Number two, the, the way to get to college students for Chabad is liquor, liquor and food. I mean, uh, that's the way to go. So the Chabad representative offers a generous supply of liquor and a generous supply of cholent and other stuff, and you got the students. But, you know, I really wonder how many, you know, of course there are exceptions, but I really wonder how many um, Chabad, how how um, effective Chabad has been in attracting um the, the educated people, Jews in the United States. I mean, I really wonder, I mean, I'm sure some people have joined, have been attracted to Chabad simply because their people have all sorts of needs and all sorts of issues. I mean, and, uh, okay. you know. So I, I would uh, I would interject on, on a positive note. I think, uh, you know, America is a harsh individualistic society where people feel, uh, lack of communal life and separated from one another. And I think uh, culturally, maybe because of its background in Russia, uh, 
but there's certain openness that uh, you see in Chabad. In they they embrace you. I think welcome. Well, they they welcome you and embrace you openly. And sometimes you don't find it in other places. So I think I think this thing is genuine, and uh, I think it's the secret of the attraction to other people because they I think they welcome you. Uh, in 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 certain way unconditionally you 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 might say they are conditioned and of course there are conditions many times i have found myself in chabad shoals um uh, completely ignored because some shmendrik showed up who has ten uh, dollars and i have only five so i can i can feel it in my bones that i i am so when i witness in this situation all of a sudden, I am I'm disappearing into total nothingness, and the other person is 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 is, is driving all the attention. So, uh, you know, it, it. I think, it, but but they still, I think, there's still people who open to you genuinely, to a degree that you don't find in American culture or in Jewish culture today. It, it doesn't mean what you're saying may have truth to it, but it doesn't negate the fact that uh, of your earlier comments that uh, uh, there's a, um, a backstory of Chabad in America, that of Chabad being hucksters, of Chabad representatives, um, you know, being into it for money, uh, of Chabad PR hounds. Um, you know, you, what you're saying is is true that Chabad offers a home. It may offer uh, love, but it's all conditional, by the way. It, it's all conditional. Uh, it's conditional on accepting a certain behavior pattern. And, um, you know, um, a number of years ago, um, I came, you know, I was uh, introduced to a homeless person and this was not your typical homeless person this is someone who actually came on bad times he was not using drugs or anything and uh, the community i was living in then really did nothing for him to help him find new accommodations uh and this has only something to do with chabad but not really but i i found him i i felt very bad for him and i you know and I found him a yeshiva in Brooklyn, and I called up the Rosh Yeshiva, and the Rosh Yeshiva said, tell him he can come over and sleep. He doesn't have to learn. He doesn't have to do anything. He can just sleep and eat here as long as he doesn't violate uh, the standards, which is, you know, uh, women, uh, drugs. And then... Um, he was there for a while. Then he switched to, I found him another place, uh, Rabbi Halberstam in Borough Park, who runs Achnosis Orchim. Um, and he's been there for a number of years, uh, Rabbi Halberstam does. You know, this man happens to put on film, but Rabbi Halberstam is not making any qualifications for taking care of his largesse, of his food or bed. You know, now I really want, my own experience personally with Chabad is that, uh, is that they're not really that eager to, um, I mean, you know, if you're, if you are religious, they're not really that eager to, uh, to uh, be nice to you. 
I mean, that's my own personal experience. Uh, I don't want to go into uh, particulars, but my personal experience, me as who I am, um, these people are not particularly nice. Now, if I if I were a doctor and a Balchuva or uh, or whatever, I bet they would be very nice to me. But you know, they know I'm not going to join them, and they know I don't have any money. So what's the point? There's no point. Um, and sure, there there a lot of what happens in the Chabad is dependent on the shliach, and there are a lot of shluchim who are nice people. There are a lot of them, but the majority of them under pressure of their livelihood, of making a living, need to become hucksters and need to become backslappers and PR hounds. I mean, that's what they become. You know, and I always say, uh, you know, that the Chabad Shluchim I like are the ones who are not PR hounds or hucksters or good fundraisers. And those are all failed Shluchim. On the other hand, the successful Shluchim who are good fundraisers, good PR people, and and money men are people I can't stand. So, yeah, but let's uh, let's not forget that, uh, uh, despite of what uh, we said, the general Chabad narrative is sort of a turn uh, to totally toxic. You know, the, yeah, the, the constant. You know, especially you. especially if you know sort of this culture and you have a feel for it. Just if you go to a regular Chabad house, uh, and uh, you know, one of the things is which, which particular my pet peeve, and it was I think it's reflected in it, what I'm writing about on the blog is that uh, sort of negation of suffering of other people, uh, historical suffering. Uh, you know, I'm talking about suffering inside their own family, suffering of other Hasidim. Uh, during Holocaust in Russia, and then is incessant uh, celebration of uh, events that connected to the immediate family, and the, the the latest being those charter flights that take that they take to Kazakhstan uh, on the anniversary of Levik, you know, on Levik's Yortzeit. I mean, there were other people be besides Levik. I mean, let's take his uh, immediate cousin, another Levik. Who actually died in Chile, uh, the father of Margolia. He right. he, di he died in Chile. His his grave is somewhere in Kazakhstan. He is as much of a yichus as Reblevik. Go find his grave. Furthermore, uh, my my own family was uh, in evacuation in Kazakhstan during the war. I have. Uh, I have a grandmother who died in Kazakhstan. She she's as much of a, uh, a Yiddish in the Shoma as anybody else. To to sort of highlight one person and one family at the expense of everybody else, I find it very uncomfortable, and I yeah. think it's it's sort of like negation or ignoring of suffering of any other people. Let's take even Rayats, for example. Like you said, he he. He got off fairly easy compared to what was the fate of other people twice. First, uh, you know, in Russia, then in Poland. There are people who've been in prison for real, not like him. And they also uh, been people who perished in Holocaust in Poland. And there were, let's say, I always remember this family that actually 
uh, hosted riots in Poland and they, they, they perished. So why not remember them instead of remembering riots all the time? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, you know, listen, I agree with you 100% because you, you, there's no need to go further than, as you alluded to, um, the greater Schneerson family. And I'll, I'll just allude to uh, people who are close relatives of the Rebbe. You know, uh, there's absolutely nothing in Chabad to commemorate um, the Rebbe's Mechutin um, and his uh, and the Rayatz's uncle, uh, Reb, uh, what's his name, uh, Hornstein, Reb Meshachai and Hornstein. Nothing. You know, the man was killed in Treblinka and uh, and his wife, who was the daughter of the Marash, was killed in Treblinka. And, you know, Chabad has, uh, what, 6,000 uh, institutions all over the world? 20,000? I don't know. I mean, there's not even one Chabad house called Base Moshe Hornstein. Nope. As, but for that matter, I'll go even further. I mean, there's nothing commemorating his son, who was the son-in-law of the Rayats, uh, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Akon Hornstein. Nothing in his as if as if he didn't exist. It, it's tragic. It makes you want to cry. I mean, it makes you want to cry. Here is a man who was the son-in-law of the Rayats. He was killed in, in Treblinka or, or was deported, I think, in Treblinka. Uh, you know, I don't claim that I have, that I may be wrong there, but he certainly was deported and killed in one of the death camps, maybe in Khmelna. Um, nothing, nothing to commemorate, zero. And the, when the Rebbe did say Kaddish frame, he said it in a, what is that Latin phrase, sola, sola voce? You know Latin, don't you? No, I don't know Latin. I mean, in what I mean is an undertone. That's uh, I forgot what the yeah. Latin term is. Uh, in an undertone, he said it. It was never announced that today, Hind to the yard site, for Benacha Mendel, Akein Horshin, the Chasna, the Benesia, from the Rebbe Rayats, was his Ungakum and Al Kiddush Hashem. Never. Why? Yeah, yeah, listen, there was systematic uh, erasure of people who didn't conform to official image of the movement. And that goes for everybody. I believe even yesterday I was talking certain documents which was trying, you know, what Margolia wrote. And I look at it and I say, wait a second. I don't think it's a complete document. And then I look, I say, where did I translate from? There was a translation, some Russian Chabadnik posted in 2011. But I'm thinking to myself, there's certain gaps here that I don't have confidence that big part of this memoir weren't cut up. Again, to erase people who didn't fully conform to the whatever image it is. I don't know if I'm right, I don't know, I don't know if I'm wrong, but it's certainly yeah. there's certainly an attempt to homogenize everything. And yeah, um, certainly it, good reason. I'm, to I'm, only, I'm, only, I'm only saying is that if, if you go to Chabad House, 50% uh, of their holiday circle is this celebration of different imprisonments of Rayats, Alter Rebbe, and all the rest. The, you know, the only, only Rebbe's go to prison. I find it well, offensive. Mm -hmm. I find it offensive on two counts. But First, mm -hmm. because, because conversation is so repetitive. But second, it's, it ignores suffering of other people. Well, you know, this is something that uh, I, I don't know when it started, but it started a long time ago. And I think it's one of the um, 
The sectarian nature of all Hasidic movements is, is a problem. It, it's a problem. Um, all Hasidic movements are sectarian, but Lubavitch is, is, is the most ironical of the sectarian movements because on one hand, it claims, it purports in its propaganda to be the most universalistic form of Judaism, that it loves all Jews. That's its propaganda, that Chabad is not a sectarian group uh, as, let's say, Bells or Babov or uh, Chernobyl is. No, they're a universalistic Jewish group that's accepting of everyone, when in fact, there is no other group of Jews in the world both Misnagdim and Hasidim, Sephardim, who are as sectarian and particularistic as Chabad of today. You know, the average Lubavitcher young man has never heard of, of any of the great rabbi, rabbinical leaders of the last 100, 150 years, nor if he has, does he recognize their, their uh, greatness. Because it's limited to to their leaders, and it's also limited to their leaders that are recognized by the Central Committee. And that does not include the Kopister, it doesn't include the Babroisker, it doesn't include the Nezhiner, it doesn't include the Ladir, it doesn't include uh, others. Only in recent years, with the death of, or I, I, with the apparent death of their leader, uh, have there has there been a perestroika, and they are allowed to mention these people and to write about them. Someone just put out a book about the uh, the other groups in Chabad. Even though all these people are Schneersons, and to a certain extent they were intermarried with the Lubavitchers, but as long as the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe was about and well, uh, the Lubavitcher publications hardly ever mentioned these people, and nor was there an attempt until the, I don't know, the, I think after he died, uh, to, to uh, find the uh, burial places of these people. Because Chabad is the most particularistic of groups. It's the most particularistic of the Hasidic groups that really believes that everyone in the world, in order to be saved, in order to find salvation, every Jew needs to become a Chabad Hasid. And that includes people studying, studying in Lakewood, it includes people studying Baba Ver Hasidim, it includes Sephardim, they all have to be Chabad. Otherwise, what's the purpose of Chabad sending a clandestine agents to convert Satmar to Lubavitch? What's the point? Satmar are Jews, they observe Torah mitzvahs, they, but what's the point of Lubavitch sending people to all, there must be a point, the point is that Lubavitch believes that they have the only truth. Listen, you know, part, part of the reason I've been publishing about uh, Schneerson's, you know, I, I hear the guy comes to me and says, oh, you're obsessed about Schneerson's. Hey, wait a second. I'm obsessed about Schneerson's? Let, let's, let's go to my house. Do you see a portrait of the Rebbe anywhere? <laughs> do, do you see? And now let's go to your house and find out what, what you put in your children's cribs. And then you tell me, I'm obsessed. No, no, I'm not. I'm trying to have to correct a historical narrative about this family and history of Chabad in general. And if, if you read what I've been publishing for two months, 
At the end of this two months, you're gonna come out thinking differently about the reality than you thought before. And it's true but for no, me also. It's true for me also. So I want I want but, and the immediate things that I want to show is that the the history of this particular family is not the history of one man. It's a very complex history. And one man might be an exception, not the rule. And two, there's a suffering of people that go beyond the suffering of people who immediately identified with this movement. And those people suffered maybe 10 times more than the leaders of this movement, and they deserve to be remembered. Well, you, you won't have any uh, disagreement from me. You know, uh, I have to agree with a lot of what you said, if not 99% uh, of what you said. That, uh, But, you know, it's I don't believe that, um, you know, the conversation is going to any, uh, you know, that I don't think there are any recept receptors to this conversation, you know. Uh, you know, people don't either know what we're talking about or they're not interested or, um, you know, they, yeah, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid you, I agree with you, but I have to say that I'm not, out there, I'm, I'm not out there to change anybody's opinion. I right. have changed my own take on reality after doing this. And that at the end, this is what counts. I, I look my, at myself, I look at history if what transpired uh, from a different angle after I had to do research in those names, and I'm not finished yet, but uh, I think this is the well, truth. The most telling, the most telling thing is, you know, some simple facts that uh, you know, which is that uh, one today the only Chabad family that carries the name Schneerson are the descendants of Schneer's Alma Schneerson. And he, um, his parents did not want to send him to Tom Chetimimim. And he uh, threatened them. I don't want to mention the story, even though it was told by his daughter. Um, but he threatened to do X, Y, and Z if he couldn't go to Tom Chetimimim. And so... That's number one. And we see that there are no other Schneersons. So you can look uh, wherever you want to look, there are no other Schneersons. And you've shown that they're, that they're, rather than the rest of the family having been killed, there were numerous Schneersons who were active in the Soviet Union, in, in, uh, in politics, and uh, other, you know, quite, quite important positions. And as you just posted in, uh, what is this man? Uh, what was he? An artist? Uh, an actor. Person. An actor. An actor. Um, so there, there were. And so the, the simple question is, um, you know, uh, what went on? What was really going on? What was really going on? Uh, I recall reading an interesting footnote. There was a gentleman, Michael, uh, Michael L. Rotkinson, who was, uh, I'm not going to go into him at this point because he's a controversial person. Uh, he was a descendant, I believe, of Rabbi Arna Strashela, but he was a fraudster, uh, whatever. But he did write about Chabad a lot because, after all, he was descendant of. Uh, and um, the Strashela, I mean, what's his name? Rotkinson, someplace in the footnote, some guy makes the makes the thing that uh, Rotkinson 
said, wrote an essay someplace comparing Chabad to New Testament Christianity. And, you know, I don't know enough about New Testament Christianity to uh, say anything. But, you know, I have to wonder um, what's going on here. I mean, uh, how come all the whole Schneerson family just, boom, just became non-religious? I mean, what is going on here? I mean, on the other hand, we see the other Hasidic Rebbe's, uh, Tversky's, Eichenstein's, Halberstam's, Teitelbaum's. Um, you know, until 1944, there were many communities whose rabbis and spiritual leaders and rebbes were members of, you know, I'm not, I'm not mentioning all the cities, uh, Perlau, others were, were descendants of these families. Yet, and today there are hundreds, I mean, I open up, the, I mean, there used to be phone books, but you opened up the Williamsburg phone book and look under Halberstam, what did you find? 70, uh, 70, 80, 90, um, you know, and, and not all Halberstams were religious, but the vast majority were, the vast majority were. Um, and the same is true with Teitelbaums and, uh, uh, and Tversky's, not all Tversky's are religious, but uh, there are plenty who are. And, uh, and, and Chabad is amazing. I, you know, I must say that until I saw the results of your investigations, I knew there were only a few Chabad that were religious, but I didn't know to the extent of the acculturation and assimilation of the Schneersons in Soviet culture. That I was unaware of. And, and uh, so, so let's 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 let let me try again. I know we're probably not going to give an answer to this because it's. A, it's a huge subject, but what, why do you think it is? And I mean, the, the easiest answer is, is obvious that, and I, I tell you about this too much. I think I tell you about this many times uh, that there was a one-two punch really in Russia. Who knows uh, if, if those people would have stayed Zionist or uh, some, uh, some movement that has a Jewish context, what would have happened? And Jews in Russia, in general, they didn't just suffer from Holocaust, but they suffer from two Holocausts, the real Holo the, the actual Holocaust, and then the Russian Holocaust. Although you, you probably object to comparing it, but it's a one-two no. one, one punch nevertheless. But do you have other ideas why Schneerson assimilated to such a degree? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the assimilation, um, in, in Russia or culturation, I don't know, it's, it's a combination of both, acculturation and assimilation. Uh, in, in Russia, among the rich Jews and prominent Jews was a, a mighty stream uh, in the late 19th century, picked up speed in World War I and the Bolshevik Revolution. And uh, the Schneersons were, uh, you know, uh, well off. They weren't poor. And... Uh, so they were, you know, and but many rabbinical families uh, suffered or whatever you want to say were had the same problem. But it, it's it, it's just amazing though that in this family of, of that had this own their own philosophy called Chabad, and the Rashab himself at all the rabbinical conferences advocated the most reactionary, excuse me for using the word, the most reactionary policies as regard to Jewish religion. 
He was against establishing the Orthodox rabbinical seminary. He was against rabbis knowing even a, a modicum of secular studies of even knowing the language. And while he was adopting all these positions, his own cousins, his own family were either in the process of acculturation or already assimilated. You know, it's amazing. I just find it amazing. You know, on the other hand, today, today we still have Soloveitchiks who are religious. We have Chavetz Chaim's grandchildren, uh, the Zach's family, and others who are religious. We have, uh, you know, we have, you know, we have uh, not lineal descendants, but we have uh, nephew, grand nephews, grand nieces, or Chaim Ozik or Jenski of Vilna who are religious. Uh, you know, I'm not saying everyone was religious. There are Lithuanian rabbinical families who also. Uh, suffered from the same thing, from the same problems. But it's amazing that this happened to Chabad. I don't know. I can't answer why. I'm, you know, it may have to do something that the Chabad theology itself, um, you know, maybe the Chabad theology itself was antinomian. There's a certain amount of, I mean, I'm, now I'm speaking off the top of my head. There's a certain amount of antinomianism in Chabad because, um you know, what's important in Chabad is not necessarily halacha or learning Gemara. What's important in Chabad is uh, philosophizing, if I can use the word. I mean, uh, is, you know, the old time Hasidim would think about what the, you know, uh, all these terms. And maybe maybe that led to a certain amount of antinomianism, that the more Hasidish you learned as a teenager, uh, you know, the more you... Uh, you began to believe, well, halacha is not important, and maybe if we're talking about philosophical or theological terminology, uh, maybe there's no difference between no religion or this religion. I don't know. I think there's something uh, to that. 